Welcome to another edition of the Find Your Calling podcast. I'm Todd Wilson, the host, and today I am just thrilled to have a close friend, Jim Putman. Jim is the founding uh, pastor at Real Life Ministries and a great guy. I'm looking forward to talking to him about calling and the journey that he's gone through. So welcome, Jim. It's good to be here. Hey, if you would, Jim, spend a couple of minutes and just give us a perspective on your background. Yeah, I'm a pastor's son. My dad was a church planter, planted about 13 churches. We'd move every two years. Back then, the model was plant a church, take it from nothing to about 100 call in another pastor, take over, go plant another church. And so I was a pastor's son and a church planter's son. Because of his view of ministry, how busy he was, how broken his own childhood was, um, my father really needed to achieve. And he was very sincere about the Lord that mixed into all that was achieve, prove your own identity, those kinds of things. So my dad loved me. He he loved his family, but he he didn't necessarily know how to be a dad. He'd never been in a pastor's home himself, so he's a first-generation believer kind of a thing. And so I grew up in a pastor's home where there was very few boundaries. He brought his home, work home with them. Every meal, we'd get several phone calls. Again, my dad loved me. My mom and dad loved me, but he didn't really uh, separate the two things. So because we didn't make much money... My mom worked as well, and this opened up the door to really some resentment to the church against the church. The church was not paying us very well. Both had to work. My parents were very busy, people at our house all the time, five kids. And the devil kind of snuck in the back door, so to speak. Uh, it left our home open to us having too much free time, bad influences through kids, and abuse, sexual abuse came into our home at a very early age uh, from outside sources, which started me down this pick, this path of shame, guilt. You don't know how to deal with that stuff. As I got older, I uh, was an athlete, so I was going to prove myself in athletics. It was one place my dad and I could spend some time together, so that, that helped in that area. And I started early. As I got older, I became more and more successful at that, but it, no matter how much I would succeed, the shame and the guilt played a part, and I started to use alcohol and drugs and everything else to try to fill that hole. So as I got older, I was really good in sports, and my off time, I was really good at partying. I was pretty angry at the church. I didn't like being in, living in a glass house and the expectations and all the spiritual stuff that was going on that I didn't understand at the time. So anyway, I went into college took a scholarship in wrestling. I already had a drinking problem by that time. I, they redshirted me. Uh, as I went to college, they started to teach us in college that, you know, there is no God. Uh, evolution explains our existence. In every class I took in a secular college, they came against Christianity, which I, I was prepared for because I already didn't like Christianity. If you'd asked me what I was, I'd have told you I was a Christian just because that's where I came from. But I didn't love Christianity. I didn't understand Jesus. I was bitter. I was... All of that. So I actually, when I redshirted, I, I had already come to a place where I didn't believe much in God. Had good reasons in my mind to, to discount that. And I went right off the deep end in alcohol. And at that point, I would have told you I could quit any time I wanted. I just had never wanted to. But as I started to black out and started to do things more and more centered around drugs and alcohol, my life became crazier and crazier. Uh, then I got into trouble, almost lost my scholarship. The coach at that point and the school said, all right, you either uh, go to 
get some help for your, your drinking or you lose your scholarship. So now I've got reason to quit and I couldn't. And at the same time, uh, my father, I was drinking all my money away. My father, I was calling him and saying, hey, I need book money, but I was lying. You know, I needed drinking money and food money because I'd spent all my money. And we had a discussion and argument about uh, God one time. He caught me hungover in the morning and I, I hadn't thought about what I was saying. And I just, I let him know everything I believed, which started a change in our relationship. He would pray for me. He would tell me he was praying for me. He started to send me books because I had said I didn't believe in God. That he was Christian because he was brought up Christian or, and, and you know, Buddhists are Buddhists because they're brought up Buddhists. I, he started sending me books and challenging me to explore and I didn't really want to explore, but I needed money. So he said, you want money? You got to read this book. And I, I, that was frustrating, but I, I really didn't have a lot of options. Well, as I, I came to the place where I had to quit alcohol, realized I couldn't. Uh, he was sending me books and uh, first books were on. I told him that, that there was no good reason to believe that there was a God. Scientists didn't believe in God. So he started sending me books from scientists who did believe in God. And I came to the place where, all right, there, there very well could be a God. There's scientists that believe in God. They have good reasons for believing in God. But then my question was, which God? And I actually hated Christianity in my mind at the time. So I thought, well, if there's a God, there must be. It must be like the Buddhist God. So I, I actually like Buddhism because you know, in that religion, there is no hell, and uh, and you are God, which fit with what I wanted to believe about myself. And and this all fit. But as I started to study based on historical criteria, which uh, I thought was very interesting. Josh McDowell, he, my dad sent me a book uh, from Josh McDowell called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. While I discounted that Christianity could possibly be true, I liked the idea of proving a religion based on historiography and books of antiquity criteria. So I started to study religion on the basis of historical criteria. Well, Buddhism soon couldn't believe it. I studied Islam. I studied the Baha'i. I studied... Uh, Hinduism, I studied Mormonism, um, and eventually my dad kept challenging me, and I finally discovered that I needed to, I finally decided I'd study Christianity, and it wasn't long until I decided, oh my goodness, Christianity's true, which didn't make me feel good at all, because I really believed, I didn't understand the gospel, if Christianity's true, that means I'm really going to hell. And there's no way God could forgive me after everything I've done. And so my father came alongside me at that point and helped me not only with the alcohol issues, but he helped me understand that the gospel was true and Jesus loved me. And that everything that had happened in my life could be forgiven. It was an amazing thing for me to have the guy who I'd embarrassed and humiliated and hurt most of my life be the one who just no matter what I, w I would do, he would always love me. My mom, they, they always loved me no matter what I had done to him. I went, okay, I'll accept Jesus. That's great, I, uh, but I'll never accept the church. And my dad walked me through that transition. And then I said, all right, I'll, I'll go to church, but I'll never be a pastor. And then my dad walked me through that. Make a long story short, I came to the conclusion God had saved me for a purpose. I, my, my sports and coaching background had played a huge part. I remember when we talked about me being a pastor, I said, there's no, there's no way I have the skills to be a pastor. And my dad said, coaching is right there in Scripture. Coaching principles are right there in Scripture. God's team needs to be coached. It needs coaches. Ephesians 4.11, those guys are to equip, prepare the saints for works of service. 
And I said, well, what would I coach them to do? I mean, you know, I, I know how to hurt people. They already seem to have that one down pretty good. He said, well, it's because they haven't been coached very well and they don't understand their role pretty well. You could help them be what God's called them to be. And so he walked me through that. So uh, I did uh, 10 years of youth ministry, and it was a very frustrating experience being in churches that uh, didn't seem to want to reach the world. Uh, it was more uh, cultural Christianity, very uninspiring. I, I thought about saying, you know what, I need to go into the sports world or the business world. This is this is a losing team, and they seem to be perfectly fine with losing. That led me to, my dad challenged me to consider church planting. So we, we planted a church called Real Life Ministries uh, about uh, 17 years ago. Since that time, I think I'm where I'm supposed to be, doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And it's been... Uh, not easy, not always fun, but it's been pretty significant. When it came to Jesus, you said yes, but the church no. Yep. And you said your dad walked you through that. What'd that look like? Well, I remember I told him that after I had accepted Christ, I told him that I, I would have nothing to do with, with the church. And he let that go. And about, I don't know how long it was, maybe three or four weeks later, he called me on the phone. We were living in different parts of the country. He said, Jim, I got this question I wanted to ask you about. I really want you to give me some wisdom on this. And I said, sure. And he said, I got this family in the church that wants me to come over to his house for dinner, but they said I couldn't bring mom. They don't like mom. And I'm really, I'm really kind of caught because I know I'm supposed to pastor these people and they want to be friends, but they don't want to be friends with mom. And that caught me off guard because my mom out of the two is like the most precious person on the planet. I said, Dad, no, you're a couple. You are, you know, if he wants to be friends with you, he's got to take mom. He can't say yes to you and no to mom. And I'll never forget, he just kind of paused for a minute. He goes, Jim, that's the way Jesus feels about his bride. The church is the bride of Christ. And you can't say, I love Jesus, but then not want to have a relationship with his bride. And, I, you know, he, man, he suckered me in. And... Uh, <laughs> And I, it just kind of blew up my, my mindset. And I knew at that point that to say yes to Jesus is to say yes to what Jesus loves and cares about. And the church is his idea. And so that was uh, that, that's the kind of thing he would do. And then he would give me scripture to read. And he'd say, you know, you, you need to go check this out. You need to see if what I'm saying to you is true. You know, he said, Jim, when you gave your life to the Lord, you said yes to him, not just as Savior, but Lord. What is he asking you to do? It's kind of like a coach, he would say. You can't say, yeah, you want to be on the team, but no, I won't work out where you want me to work out. I won't practice what you want me to practice. You, if, he, if he's your Lord and your coach, you got to be involved in what he says you got to be involved in. And then how about the next transition? At this point, you're an All-American wrestler, you're... You're thinking business. You're not thinking going into the church world, but you said your dad kind of led you down the path of leading you toward ministry. What did that look like? Well, there was another step. Um, I, I started going to church, and I was bored. You know, and, and I, I was becoming very critical because I'm like, if these people's role is to win people to Jesus, this this isn't going to win people to Jesus. And my dad said, Jimmy says, uh, you're like a stagnant, poisonous pond right now. And I go, what, what do you mean? He goes, well, if a healthy body of water has water coming in and water going out. If water's coming in, it floods and it kills everything around it. If water's going out, it dries up. You've had water coming in and you're going to be bored. You're going to be critical. Your job isn't to be critical. Your job is to get in the game. 
And he says, you need to have start water, having water go out and, and be a part of ministering to the needs, filling, you know, you, you, you use this analogy of in a boat, if it, it, the person who's being critical is the person who's not rowing. Everybody who's rowing is too busy rowing to, to, to think about what everybody else is doing. And, he, you know, he'd use these analogies and, and I would get it. And so the next week I get a, I go to church and the pastor is a little church plant and the pastor comes up and says, Hey Jim, there's only um, four high school kids in our whole church and we have nobody their age. Would you think about doing a Bible study for these four kids? And my dad just had that conversation with me like a week and a half before. I was like, wow, uh, you know, okay, I'll try it. And pretty soon four becomes eight, becomes 10, becomes 20, becomes 40, becomes 60. So my dad starts saying, Jim, you know, maybe, maybe you, you've got to think about ministry and maybe that's God's call. And, you know, I put so much time and energy into to wrestling. I was going to be a coach. I was thinking about, do I want to go for the Olympic team? I mean, there was so much into that. And so my dad just said, you know, you need to pray about it and be open to that. The Lord will direct you out of one thing into the other if you'll pray about it and you'll be open to going. And I said, well, what am I going to, what am I, if, as a pastor, what am I going to teach these people to do? Like, as I said, you know, they seem to already hurt them, each other pretty well. Now I'm going to give them physical tools. And he said, no, coaching is right there in scripture. Coaching is, is equipping the saints. It's teaching people to be good individuals, but work well together as a team. That's all being a shepherd, a pastor is. You have all those skills already developed. Your whole life has developed these skills. Not everybody goes and develops these skills through a Bible college setting or a traditional way. Every experience in your life has shaped you for what God's going to call you to do. You just got to see it that way. So he helped walk me through this transition. You know, he was a disciple maker. Who didn't just tell me the word, but helped me apply the word in relationships so that I could do what God called me to do. There's not a standard definition of calling out there. How would you articulate calling? Well, to me, calling is just trying to figure out, you know, what has God specifically saved you for? Ephesians 2.10, you know, it's a verse from the book that, that's one of the major principles of the book is that you are saved by grace through faith. Four good works which God planned for you to do before time began. And it says you are Christ's masterpiece uh, or workmanship, right? I like the NLT version. You are Christ's masterpiece created anew in Christ Jesus for good works which God planned for you to do before time began. So if God has a plan for your life. He saved you for a purpose. Calling is just that concept of discovering what that is. And again, you know, you know in my view of things... Um, spiritual maturity in Christ is the concept of me helping you or somebody helping me or, you know, helping people not only get born again, the beginning stages, but helping them discover who they are in Christ. It's uh, maturity in Christ is to, it really, a big component of that is loving God and loving others. All the scripture is summed up in loving God and loving others. It's in relationship, learning to be a part of the family of God. You're born again. You have a spiritual father. You also have brothers and sisters, spiritual parents, who help you understand what it means to know God, to know others, and to do the things that God has called you to do with your life. He prepared good works for you to do. And part of the discipleship process is what you're doing in this book, what, you, what you're doing in the sermon series, what you're trying to do in church is help the church, the community of believers, come together as family 
to help the new family members discover their calling, what God saved them for. How would you articulate your calling? Well, honestly, I think I'm a coach. I'm just not in the field I thought I was going to be in. So a coach, in my opinion, helps individuals understand who they are and become good players, but then helps them work together as a team. But ultimately, what I'm discovering is, initially, I was a coach in a local body. And what's happening now is I'm finding that I'm a coach of coaches. So my calling is to coach coaches. Well, if we press back, you've been through a life planning process Mm -hmm. where you kind of look at the story of your life over time. If you were to just take the story of your life at the different transition points, what are some of the I remember whens in your story, even some of maybe you've already covered, that maybe you didn't have clarity at the time revealing your role or your core identity as a coach, but in retrospect, the I remember whens, you can see those elements of your core identity. I remember things like major transitions in my life where where God was calling me into something that was going to take on the next stage. But at every time that there was a calling, there was a shaping of, of circumstances in such a way that at the time I didn't feel like I was having much of a choice. So even the way I got into wrestling, for instance... There was a a group of circumstances that forced me into a position where that was the only choice I had. I think about ministry. I was successful in wrestling. And God did some things that were very frustrating to me. I mean, it was very frustrating. My senior year of college, I get mono. um, Some things happened in the sports world that were agonizing to me. I had so much invested in that. But at the same time, there's this other door that's opened that's, that is pushing me towards that direction. So as God was eliminating one thing, he was opening up another door. And at, at the time, I was so frustrated at God. And that was one of the things that you know my father had to guide me through. That's part of the discipleship process to help me see that God wasn't just eliminating my dreams. He was opening up another door. And that then my dad was able to help me tie those two things together. So I think about going into the ministry. That was a, a major period of time where, you know, I, I remember I was, a, I was teaching in a school and I had a girl who uh, had great grades, but mid-semester just ended up with just her whole attitude was changed and she was just, she became bitter and angry and frustrated. And so I, I called her in after class and said, come in and sit down. And we talked. And I, at the time I was doing youth ministry over here, but I was also coaching and teaching. She tells me that her dad had been sober for years, but he had started drinking and he was doing things that was just, just awful, you know? And so she opened up about that. I got the chance to say, I don't know why he's doing what he's doing, but I do know God loves you. And I got to share Jesus with her, and I invited her to youth group. Well, the next day I come in, and the principal wants to talk, and he's and he's gotten a call from, from this girl's parents, and he says, listen, you cannot talk about Jesus. You invited her to youth group. Her parents are very upset. You cannot do that. And I remember sitting there, and I asked the principal, I said, you tell me what good Christopher Columbus would have done that girl. And I realized that I was going to finish out that semester, but that was the major turning point where I realized I cannot teach. I cannot spend my life talking about Christopher Columbus or about wrestling. 
Wrestling wasn't the point anymore. I was a teacher, but just teaching for the sake of teaching, that wasn't it anymore. And I was going to spend the rest of my life talking about Jesus. Not that Christopher Columbus doesn't have something that can, you know, some important components to it. History is great. Wrestling is a tool. But from the re- for the rest of my life, I was going to talk about the most important thing. And I knew I had to. And so that was a moment. When I, when I decided to go into ministry full time, there was a moment there. There was a moment when I decided to become a church planner. Uh, there was a moment when I decided that my job wasn't just the local church. Circumstances came together. Doors opened. And, you know, as you say in your book, you know, are you, are you willing to say yes to Jesus wherever he tells you to go? And do you even tie what's happening in your life to these open doors? They're not just, you know, which, in order for this door to come open, something else had to be shut. And that's usually painful. And then in every case, I had people around me because I, it, part of the discipleship process had been you are a part of a family. Yes, you have a spiritual father. You have brothers and sisters, spiritual parents. These people speak into your life. Will you allow the community of God to be the relationship that helps you decide how you're going to live your life? Are you going to let wise counsel be a part? Because it was in almost every one of these cases, it was the experience with the people of God that helped me tie the components together to lead me to the direction that God wanted me to go. And then it was those same people that helped me live out that direction. I don't think any of us are Christians alone. Not only does it does it take people to help you come to the decision, it takes people to help you live out the journey. And so that's that spiritual component, that relational component that helps you find your place and your calling in life. It looks to me, Jim, like one of the elements in your story, when I listen to your story, the relationship with your dad and and at the intersection of this relationship and it's good and it's bad is you getting clarity to next things whether it's Christianity itself it's attending church it's going into ministry even the story of the girl and where that fits in the high school girl to to you realizing I don't want to spend the rest of my life talking about Christopher Columbus it's at the intersection of a relationship that you seem to get clarity on next steps. Can you speak to that in the context of calling? Well, you and I both agree on calling. You're called. The question is, how do you get the calling? And one of the things I believe um, is that God speaks through his people. He speaks through his word. He speaks by his Holy Spirit, and he speaks through his people. So I believe that the way in which God calls is typically through people. Now, I, I agree that in the Old and New Testament, Samuel, God heard a vo- you know, God spoke to Samuel. But I've never had an audible voice like that. Uh, I've had a, a feeling inside of me that I, I had to go, okay, is that God speaking to me? How do I know? Well, Scripture says, my sheep know my voice and they will not follow another. So the calling in your heart cannot contradict the Word of God. The Spirit of God never contradicts the Word of God. When somebody comes up to me and, and speaks to me, it's, okay, the word is clear. I have this feeling inside of me, but what? But God works through other people to confirm, to challenge, to speak. And so in almost every part of my life, it's tying all those things together. Typically, as I said, the Lord will work through circumstances as well. 
But again, I, I, in every case, as he was shutting this door, this door was opening, I was so frustrated about the door that was being shut that I didn't see the door that was opening as the direction of God for my life. It was, it was other people, other Christians saying, hey, have you thought about this? Have you thought about God has saved you for a purpose? And that's not the biggest purpose. And maybe it's this over here. And then challenging me to go to the Word. And, you know, people saying, hey, Paul didn't want to be the disciple to the Gentiles. He didn't like Gentiles. How did he come to his calling? He was called, but what are the things that happened in his life that drew him so that he knew that was it? And you start going, okay, he gets the voice from, from God. He, he, Barnabas comes to him, you know, and no one else will come to him. Barnabas, the son of encouragement, comes to him. He, he introduces him into the body. In every case... There was this confirmation from other believers. And again, one of the problems I think most Christians are thinking about because they don't understand calling is they think they're going to get some sort of call from God personally and they've never gotten that so they think they must not be called. And they, they, they'll even talk to me about it. They'll go, did you get, how did you get your calling? I mean, did God just speak to you? Because we don't talk about calling and how that happens and they didn't have that voice from heaven that they see in the New Testament, they think they don't have it. And one of the things I know you believe in and you say in your book is this proxy idea of we've given up our proxy to somebody else. We think somebody else got the calling and we didn't get the calling. So we give it to them and we'll pay the money and they'll take care of it for us. Whereas we all are a holy nation and a royal priesthood. And part of disciple making is to help them understand how to see their calling, how you got yours. So that they don't just assume you heard a voice from on high. You share with them how you got yours, how people played a part, how you want to play a part in theirs. So it's not just introducing them to Jesus and saying you're on your way. Let me help you discover the call of God in your life. So relationship plays a huge part in calling. You are very passionate about discipleship. So give us the link from discipleship to calling. Well, again... We were told to go out into the world and make disciples. So we, in, I believe every Christian is a disciple. That's what they called them at first. It wasn't the Christians and the disciples. They were all disciples. So I am a disciple, and I'm called to make a disciple. Well, then you have to go, well, then what is maturity? And I believe maturity is, is to know who Jesus is, and you're following him. You're obedient to him. You're, all of the law and prophets is summed up in loving God and loving others. So obedience has something to do with relationship. So you're loving God and loving others, and you're doing, you, you would say do and go, you're doing what God calls you to do, but also, you know, where is that? So that's the that's that last part of going. Where where am I called? I believe that part of discipleship uh, is to help them understand what a relationship with Jesus and other people looks like. Help them understand that God has saved them for a purpose, mission. You're saved for a purpose. And then helping fit them figure out where that is. The discipleship process isn't over until they've discovered where their, their calling is and what, what gifts they've been given. A lot of times we don't even recognize our own gifts. I didn't recognize my own gifts. I didn't understand how my gifts that I knew I could do could find their way into the faith and be useful to the faith. It was somebody else who said, no, these gifts can be used in the body of Christ. And, and my dad said, listen, you may not be a senior pastor, but you're called to be a missionary for Christ wherever you go. Those gifts are absolutely useful. And then he helped me find my place to use them. 
And, you know, Paul says to Timothy, raise up reliable men who will be able to teach others. There's the raising them up and then helping them to figure out how they use those gifts in the lives of others. So discipleship isn't over just because I introduce Jesus to you and then I say, here's a Bible and go on your way. If my dad would have done that to me, I'd have never found my place in the ministry. You know, when Jesus calls us to be his disciples and you look at the Last Supper, the teaching he did, there was a promise of trouble. So becoming a disciple doesn't give us this carefree, joy-filled, always happy life necessarily. There's troubles that we're going to face. In the same way in calling, one of the things we, that's really a danger when we think of calling is if we let it become a self-help thing or it's about yeah. self-fulfillment. So using kind of the Apostle Paul, who, who I think you and I would agree, he was in his sweet spot in his own words. Paul, called to be an apostle, a pioneer, a starter, who carries or plants the gospel, the, the doing, where? To the Gentiles. We see his be-do-go. Mm -hmm. And so here's a guy that's just functioning in a sweet spot, doing what he's made to do. And yet, many of his writings are from prison. He tells us about his trials. Speak just a little bit about this danger of seeing calling incorrectly as yeah. this, this you know, our way to be more self-fulfilled. Yeah, I think part of discipleship is to help people understand the state of the world we're in. When you're born again and your eyes are opened, what, what are you born again to? Well, your eyes are open to the spiritual war. That we don't fight against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces in the heavenly realms. So you're not born into peacetime, you're born into a war. And so part of the discipleship process is to help them understand you're in a war. And you are saved to be a warrior. We are fellow soldiers, Scripture calls us. And so as a fellow soldier, calling is to go, what part of the service are you going to be in? What part of the army are you going to play? Because it's a war. And so I'm called to what? I'm called to a war. Until Jesus returns and makes all things right and the war is over. So in a war, you're going to get wounded. You know, once I, in every case in my own life, as I started to serve, it wasn't, you know, if I found my right calling that it wasn't going to hurt. No, it hurt because the devil's going to come against you. People are less mature than they should be. You make mistakes because you have a sinful nature and you don't have full wisdom. And so now the discipleship process is this is the part of the battle you're going to be in. And now you need to know what you should expect. You're going to get banged up. You're going to get hurt. And then these very same people that helped you find calling are often the ones that help you fulfill your calling. Relationship doesn't just help you find a place to go fight by yourself. Relationship gives you the strength and the protection that you need to go and fight in those places. So not only does calling help you find the part of the battle you're supposed to be in, but they help you fight the battle. So I always think of it this way. You know, when we tell people, if you find your calling and you get into the right place, it's going to be, you know, easy. Same thing, if you invite Jesus into your life, he's going to bless you and make you healthy and wealthy. Uh, you know, we, I said it was all about relationship. If you have the Holy Spirit in you, and you're in the body of Christ, and you're going to be in relationship, it's going to be a, a beautiful thing. Well, it is beautiful, but it isn't easy, because relationship takes dying to self. 
every day because my sinful nature makes it about me. With the Holy Spirit's help, I can die so I can make it about others. Relationship is right. It isn't easy. Someday it'll be easy when the sinful nature is gone, the devil's gone. Relationship will definitely be easy in the new heaven and the new earth. Until then, it's a battle. And the devil is a divider. If God is the one who builds and reconciles a relationship, the devil is the divider. Same thing in calling, in the do part. Uh, doing the, doing significant things that mean something is what God calls you to. But that isn't easy. And it's going to hurt. And people are going to stand in the way of that. The devil is not only the divider of relationships, but he is going to try to do everything he can to discourage you from that place where you're called to fight. And so, again, I don't, I don't think we should call anybody to something easy. I don't like this whole... You know, accept Jesus, and then Jesus will help you attain your, your goals and plans for life. It's really, that's a selfish form of selling the gospel. If you follow Jesus, you'll get whatever you want. That's not what we're called to. We're called to a war. Someday we, the battle's over, but until then, it's a war. And discipleship helps people understand that. In calling, I like to turn to the John 10.10. You know, Jesus came that we might have life and, and have it or take hold of it more abundantly. The person who comes to you and says, look, when sin was introduced in the garden and we get this chasm of separation from God, now Jesus comes, now that we accept him and have life, why, why isn't that just enough? Like, why don't we then just experience the joy? Why don't we experience the abundant life just by accepting Jesus? What do you say to that person? Well, the way I would say it is, when I look at the New Testament guys, if Jesus promised abundant life to the disciples, and yet you see them being chased around and brutalized and beaten, then you have to go, well, what did Jesus mean by abundant life? And by the way, more abundant life. Listen, I, would, I can remember being unsaved, and I can tell you this. There is no comparison to the life I have now, to the life I had then. So Jesus definitely kept his promise to me. I have a more abundant life. I'm fighting for the right things. I have relationship. I was so lonely. I was so broken. No one could trust me. I couldn't trust myself. I was destroying everything that I had around me. I, I do have more of an abundant life. But scripture, Paul writes, we groan inwardly, longing for our heavenly dwelling. He's speaking about himself and he's saying, I, I do have abundant life. I've been, to, I, I've been caught up into heaven. I've spent time with the resurrected Jesus. But he's still saying we groan. Inwardly, there's something not quite right. It's because though the Holy Spirit lives in us, it's we still have a sinful nature. And every morning when I wake up, it's right there and I have to die to it. We still have a devil who's coming against us. I still have other people who have a sinful nature. And they're making decisions. We live in a broken world. In Christ, we can now walk through the valley of the shadow of death and fear no evil. But we don't. it doesn't mean we don't walk through the valley of the shadow of death. <laughs> We still are here. It's more abundant life. Ultimately, it's going to be a completely abundant life, a complete abundant life. You know, as Hebrews says, we're looking, longing for a, a better country, but, but it, we haven't accomplished that yet. We aren't there yet. We're going to be in Revelation 21, a new heaven, a new earth, no more suffering or pain or sorrow. God will walk with his people. It's going to be a wonderful thing. But that's not here yet. The difference between a Christian and a non-Christian in my mind is a mature Christian and a non-Christian is a non-Christian knows that they were designed for something better and still thinks they can, if they just follow the right formula and find the right place on this planet, they'll get it. 
a Christian knows they were created for perfection, but because of sin, we lost it. With Christ's help working in us, we're being restored to that, but we're not going to be fully restored to that until eternity. So a Christian just knows the only reason the grass looks greener over there is because we haven't gotten over there to mess it up yet. And so we just understand that the world is broken. And again, many Christians were not discipled. So they still think if they just find the right thing, then they'll be completely happy. The new re This relationship is too much work. I'm out. I'll find one that there isn't so much work. This job, I'm out. This whatever. There's a dissatisfaction inside of them and they don't know where it comes from. And they don't know that on this side of the eternity, it's not going to be fully dead, fulfilled, so to speak. Well, Jim, I really appreciate your words of wisdom and look forward to talking to you again. Kim, thanks.